We're all missing travel right now, but you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals and flights. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, mmm, and yes! Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, visit Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more out of it. And don't forget to download the Priceline app for even more savings. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 56 of the That's So Mets podcast. I'm your host, Connor Rogers. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joe DeMeo. And right now, uh, it's put up or shut up for the Mets. As we sit here and record this on Tuesday afternoon, they're about to kick off a series against the Giants where, uh, quite frankly, with the starting pitching being rolled out by the Giants, who are dealing with some injuries, this is a winnable series for the Mets who have been struggling as of late, and then the schedule really eases up. So we're going to look at today, uh, can they put their foot on the gas? Can they make a run? Can they make September interesting? If that's going to be the case, it needs to start now, and it's going to start with the return of Francisco Lindor as well as Javi Baez being back. So Mets fans will finally see that exciting middle infield playing together. But Joe, let's bring you in. Uh, very interesting time in the Mets season. You and I were joking before we started this show today that we're actually excited to watch this team play with Lindor and Javi together. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, you're you're going to be bringing in that energy. That's what Javi Baez and Lindor bring to the table. And of course, they're obviously supremely talented baseball players. So hopefully, you know, they come out guns a blazing, ready to go. And Lindor doesn't have too much rust. And, you know, you don't have Javi striking out five times a night. But I'm feeling optimistic. Why not? I mean, there's 38 baseball games left in the season. So if, you know, the Mets don't end up winning the National League East and don't make the playoffs, we only get to do this 38 more times this year. So I'm going to do my best to enjoy it, have fun with it. And you know what? After this giant series, which, like you said, they they could and should win this series with the pitching matchups that are on the slate here. They then have, you know, 15 in a row with the Nationals and the Marlins. And those are teams that they should be beating up on. And Atlanta has another one with the Yankees tonight and then San Francisco this weekend. So if beat up on San Francisco and then have San Fran beat up on Atlanta, you know, it, it ain't over yet. I, I know it's it's a frustrating time and uh, if they lose tonight, you know, maybe the tune changes a little bit, but I'm feeling optimistic. I don't know why, but I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I am, too. I mean, there's obviously a lot of highs and lows around a baseball season because of how long it is, the various injuries you deal with. I mean, it's no secret that since Francisco Lindor and Jacob deGrom have both been out in the second half, it has significantly hurt the Mets, and it's it's really not just on the field. I think it's also part of the, you know, the vibe of the team, the feel of the team, having DeGrom out there every fifth day or having Lindor out there, his, his cal, you know, gold glove, and the fact that really since I think the end of May, he was hitting like the superstar version of Francisco Lindor. He had a really bad first two months, and then he got it going, and 
was just all around the player that this team was hoping for. And then obviously the acquisition of Baez, uh, when he's played, you see the kind of impact he can single-handedly make. So now that besides DeGrom, but in terms of the everyday lineup and the rest of the staff and hopefully Noah Syndergaard eventually, the and he's not probably going to be you know starting or giving them five, six innings, but in some kind of role, you hope that this club can make things interesting and, and probably not only just playing for the standings, but also playing for themselves to show that, you know, if they all really want to be here next year, you're going to have to fight to the end. You, you can't be, you know, eight, nine, ten games back the first week, second week of September, because this thing's going to get blown up if that's the case. And really, no matter what, there are wrinkles of this franchise right now that probably will be blown up in the offseason so we will get through some of that today we will get through some of the now today what this race looks like and of course the future as always kicking things off with the number here episode 56 maybe one of the worst ones we'll have to do um just being honest i almost thought about scrapping the entire operation but the reality of it is don't want to do that we're in some real dog days here uh, with numbers coming up, but at least we have some relievers, um, some you know players that came up as rookies and wore some bad numbers. But 56, <laughs> this is one for you, Joe. Dave Joss, his first time with the Mets in 2010, wore 56. Ty Kelly was mentioned last week's show for wearing number 55 in 2016. Uh, Ty Kelly also wore number 56, apparently. So uh, a man of many talents and also including wearing many numbers. So we are in the bad, bad times in terms of the numbers here. I mean, next week's going to be really fun. I, I already know who the headliner for next week is. Yeah, next week's so, great. Yeah, next week's going to be fun. But yeah, you get into the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, once you get into the 80s, I mean, you're not going to have someone for most of them. Uh, and then and, th- and then we're just going to have to circle back to the beginning, like like we said, that, uh, you know, we missed a bunch at the beginning, kind of picked up on this number a week thing a little later. So, yeah, I mean, I love Dave Jouse. Great BP pitcher. The meatball king. Next yes, week sir. is so good that we'll probably spend eight to ten minutes on the player that headlines number 57. And if you have to look this up, shame on you. It's so good, we'll probably spend 10 minutes on it. So moving forward with this week's show, uh, before we get into the mailbag, it was a tough road trip for the Mets. And interestingly enough, they were in, majority of the games were very close, quite frankly. Whether it was the bullpen holding strong or them actually getting some good starts from the starting pitching or the offense hanging around a little bit, not putting up zeros necessarily. But at the end of the day, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades, your record is what your record is. And they could not scrap together many wins on this road trip against tough teams. But if you want to be considered a team, a division champion or a division contender, you can't fall completely flat on your face against those teams. So just, you know, and I know a lot of the games are really late, but there was also some day games sprinkled in. What was your overall, was there anything you got from this series, Joe, that you necessarily didn't think before it, or did it kind of start to confirm a lot of your fears about where this team has struggled, not just recently, but in the long term as well? For me, it kind of solidified that the Mets are not in the same class as the Dodgers. 
that that to me is the thing that stuck out most. The Giants, I I, I still don't get it with the Giants. I mean, they're it's mind blowing, dude. They they have a better record than the Dodgers, but like when they put out their lineup, I'm not like, man, they're gonna put a whooping on us today. And I thought the Mets should have won that series. You know, they took two games into extra innings. Uh, to me, they should have won the Giants series. But my biggest takeaway on the Dodgers is if the Mets want to be the East Coast Dodgers, they're a heck of a, a heck of a distance away from getting to that level. I think so, too. And I think that when you look at it, you can kind of see across the board, like they are dealing with some significant absences as well, the Dodgers right now. And you wouldn't know it looking at their everyday lineup. That's how deep they are. It's actually remarkable. I know the broadcast pointed to this many times, and I know he's had a really disappointing season, but you have to laugh when you see Cody Bellinger batting eighth. You're like, at what point? Like, this is truly absurd. And obviously, Mookie Betts has been out uh, with a hip injury, and it almost, I'm sure, if, you know, I'm not saying... They're faking it or anything like that, but I'm sure they don't need feel the need to rush Mookie Betts back because they know they can hold the fort right now. And this staff has survived, you know, a, a situation that would devastate most teams and what's gone on with Trevor Bauer and Clayton Kershaw. Now, obviously, two totally different scenarios. Bauer uh, dealing with a legal situation that, you know, we don't know if he'll ever pitch again in the majors. But besides that, the Dodgers were expecting him to be a gigantic piece of their equation. And Clayton Kershaw, of course, dealing with a forearm injury that's kept him out the second half of the season. And they just keep cruising along. And I think you're seeing when you compare it or watch the Mets, the Mets are are a little bit of this glass house in a way where it looks really nice when, you know, you know how excited you and I were heading into the season and the first half overall. But a couple injuries here or there, and it's just shown that the first half they survived it, and it was actually remarkable that they did with how many injuries they've had. The second half, they just haven't. Lindor's absence has been way bigger than anybody's talking about. Obviously, they could not survive to grow because when the Mets get going real bad, right? They go on losing streaks. It feels like Degrom shows up just in time. To break things up, whether it's a three-game losing streak, it always feels like it's a two or a three-game losing streak. Then Degrom's on the mound, and the team pretty much wins. And it just goes to show you that no, I don't expect anyone to replace Jacob Degrom. That's something you and I have discussed at length on this show many weeks. But the fact is, they just aren't as deep, and it's understandable. This is first year of new ownership, and I know fans are very upset and angry, and I I get that side of it too. But the Dodgers are in a completely different place in their timeline of constructing that championship roster. The Dodgers are a decade in, right? So they've been they've been working on this for some time. You know, Steve Cohen talks about winning a World Series in three to five years, and that'd be fantastic if they did. But what Sign we also up. have to realize is the Dodgers, who arguably have the best ownership group in baseball, you know, we still have to see what Steve Cohen is. But he certainly has a chance to be there. But the Dodgers took nine years with their ownership group. So it's not easy to get there, but their Dodgers are at a point where they have so much depth. Um, you know, the Mets, the Mets have had so many injuries this year that I don't think even the Dodgers could survive. The, you know, the Mets are gonna pitch Heath Hembry 
waiver claim at some point, I assume, in this series. And the minute he steps on the mound, he'll be the 62nd player that the Mets used this year. And they're barreling towards the major league record of 67 really quickly. So uh, it's going to be an all-time year as far as injuries go. You know, Not making excuses, but it, it's a lot to handle. Uh, what's really interesting to me is to see the fan celebration of Lindor coming back because almost all of them hated Lindor <laughs> throughout this season. And, you know, we're ripping him left and right. And now uh, everybody's really happy to see him. Um, so I, I'm just excited to, to get him back out there and see just the energy, the talent he brings, bring that defense back at shortstop. I can't wait to see a ball blasted on the ground up the middle and just see Lindor just standing there waiting for it because he shifted and is playing in the perfect spot. The ball just finds him. Uh, yeah, it, you can't do anything about DeGrom. It is what it is. Uh, they certainly didn't think they would lose Carlos Carrasco as long as they did. They thought Noah Syndergaard would be back by June 1st. So uh, even the pitching, it, it didn't work out. David Peterson, he got hurt and then broke his foot in a football injury. I assume not playing football, but somehow got a Jones fracture. So even there, you know, Jordan Yamamoto got injured. Joey Lucchese got Tommy John surgery. So even the guys they had penciled in as depth got hurt. So uh, they've done a a remarkable job staying afloat. It it oddly caught up to them once they got all the regular hitters back. That's what really kind of shocked me. Because I was like, all right, the... The offense, they they made it through. Now all the reinforcements are back, and they struggled. It's just like, well, they're injured, so you know it takes a little time to get your feet back under. You'll be good, and they just haven't hit with any level of consistency. Hopefully, it starts today because, like you said, it's it's now or never. I mean, the the next eighteen games are to me going to decide the season. If they don't win the San Fran series, and you know, they're obviously not going to sweep every game of the Marlins and Nationals, but if they don't win a really high percentage of them and put a whooping on them, then I, I just don't think, you know, the opportunity will be there for them this year. Yeah, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to not take advantage of that part of the schedule and, you know, expect to compete that late in the season with the situation they've placed themselves in. If they were three or four games back, you know, you can get away with a couple of tough losses against teams like that and still hang around. But now you've placed yourself in a situation where you really, really got to get hot in a way where you have to, at a minimum, it seems like this team has to start winning every two out of three games. At a minimum. I don't even know if that's, I mean, that's probably significantly underestimating what needs to be done and and we're going to get to that I'll actually throw in a question here early from Steve Miller who said the Mets need to win blank games to feel good about winning the division I think they need to get to 90 to have a legit shot Braves are at a 544 win percentage which is 88.1 wins over 162 games good job Steve that means Mets need to go 29 and 9 in remaining games so I think Steve kind of did the math for us here which I greatly appreciate because I don't think Joe or I uh, would have done that nope. very well live on the show here. Now, that to me is not nuts. I know some people will sit there and go, you're absolutely insane. It's lofty. It's not easy. It's not impossible and because of who they play. But this goes back to, once again, what I said. 
you almost or definitely need to either be winning more than every two out of three games, or two, the Braves have to fall off a cliff. And I don't know, man. I look at that team. Uh, it was great to see the Yankees beat them the other night. And it's like, because they have not been losing, dude. Every night, I, I check on this every night, especially since I have Ozzy Albies on my fantasy team. I get an even quicker update if the Braves win. It's every single night. They went 9-0 and on their last road trip, I believe. And, and yep. you know, obviously, they lost. that's insane, number one. They went 9-0 and on that road trip. And then, you know, they lost to the Yankees. Thank God. Now, they played the Orioles and the Marlins and the Nationals. Okay. They still went 9-0, and dude. They didn't let up at all. Now, they have one more against the Yankees as we sit here and record. Then, they got three against the Giants, which the Giants are doing the Mets a favor. They'll get the tougher part of the Giants rotation, it looks like. Then, they got the Dodgers. But, as you start to celebrate, oh, wow, their schedule is really hard for the next three series. Well, then, they get the Rockies, the Nationals the Marlins, the Rockies again. So don't expect the Braves to go in the tank anytime soon is what I'm saying. They're not going to. And, you know, Steve, of course, did the great math for us. So based on that, I think the Mets need to get to 88.2 wins. Um, Not sure how they get to 88.2, but find a way. (laughs) You just have to find a way to be better than the Braves. And what will be really interesting, if the Mets can keep this really really tight you know if if the Braves go ahead and lose to the West Coast teams that beat down the Mets and the Mets beat up on the teams that the Braves just beat up on imagine the Mets being a game out game and a half out something like that and you go into the last series in Atlanta Mets in Atlanta for the division like that's that's the dream scenario at this point trying to be you know realistic slash hopeful is that that last series is for the division and the Mets need to take two out of three or or something like that. And that would be some insane, you know, meaningful games in September slash October. Like that's, that's what it's all about is being able to compete for that spot. And obviously the Mets dug themselves a hole that they're not going to, unless they just stop losing baseball games entirely, they're not going to be, you know, wrapping up the division at some point and be able to just chill for a few days Best case scenario, it looks like, you know, that last weekend you can play for the division. Now, on the more optimistic side, because I said the schedule goes back in the tank again after this tough three series for the Braves, they do close out their season against first the Padres, who are fighting for their lives right now. They've been awful. The Phillies, who, of course, have their eyes on the division, two games ahead of the Mets, and then the Mets. So I will say this about the Braves. Their final nine games are going to be against very, very hungry dogs. And that is at least a glimmer of hope. And, you know, for the Mets, it's not like it it gets any easier. Um, You know, the Mets are, you know, obviously finishing with the Braves. Before that, they have the Marlins, which helps towards the end, but the Brewers and the Red Sox before that. So... I mean, we can look ahead all we want. At the end of the day, the Mets need to start winning a lot of baseball games. And, quite frankly, they should. I mean, they really should. They have their lineup back. Um, The pitching has been a little better recently, I think, for the most part as a whole. And the bottom line is you got to start winning a lot of games. So before we get to the mailbag, Joe, do you have any closing thoughts on the 
you stretch that is kind of facing them. You know, next time we're on the air together next week, they'll they'll be in the middle of that or the beginning of that 15 game stretch against the Marlins and Nationals. Um, but but first they got to get through the Giants here, which they haven't done yet. Have to get through a Giants, like I said, have to take two out of three here, and you just have to go and beat down on the bottom of the NL East. That's what the Braves just did. Like you said, they did a nine game stretch and just swept out the Nationals and the Marlins, and that's what the Mets need to do. And one thing that I will say, although the Mets schedule in September does look a little bit daunting once you get out of the Miami-Washington stretch, what I think will help them a little bit, it's the Yankees, it's the Cardinals, it's the Phillies, it's nine straight at home. And the Mets are a significantly better team at home than they are on the road. So, if you want to be optimistic, which I think I'm going to choose to be, at least for this episode, maybe next week my mood changes, but today I'm I'm going to be that way. And I see nine home games against teams that, all right, the Yankees are better than the Mets, but the Mets and Yankees always end up splitting, right? It's it's You very rarely see, regardless of the year, one dominate the other. And the Cardinals, I mean, they're good. They're a little up and down. And Philly... Hungry, just like the Mets are. So what it comes down to is that hunger, man. Do you want to be in the playoffs? You got to show up in these games. That's what meaningful games in September means. It means turning on when the lights are the brightest, when the moments are the biggest, when it's the most important time. You know, winning and losing in July, obviously those games matter. All 162 matter. But I don't care what anyone says. You know, it doesn't matter the same as a mid-September game at home Friday night in black jerseys against the Phillies four games out of the division or whatever they might be at that point. So I'm interested to see how this run goes. Uh, This time next week, I think we'll have a much clearer picture as to where the Mets are at. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because once again, you got to have a big week here coming off a disastrous road trip. So, all right, let's get into the mailbag right now. The first one is from Daniel he says, any chance the Mets go big game hunting for a bat this offseason? The offense really could use a bash brother for Pete. Going after the likes of a Chris Bryant, Nick Castellanos, or even a Seeger seems like a wiser, albeit pricier, investment than Javi Baez would be. Well, I think he's speaking your language, Joe. What do you think? Yeah, the Mets are going to go big game hunting for something this offseason. They're not just going to do some so-so moves. I've been on record it's an opinion, nothing sourced or anything behind it, but my opinion is the Mets will have the highest payroll in baseball in 2022, which would mean they're going to spend a lot of money somewhere. And is it Chris Bryant? Perhaps. Is it Nick Castellanos? Sure, maybe. Is it Corey Seager? Probably not. Um, my money would be, you know, Javi Baez is, is re-signed. It's not my uh, preference. But something tells me that Javi's going to end up sticking around. And I don't think that means that a Chris Bryant's off the table. No, I don't either. Or Nick Castellanos is off the table. Or a Michael Conforto is off the table. I don't think any of those things are off the table. It's going to have Where the Mets really need to make a difference this offseason is br- not... Br- I want to say... I'm saying breaking up, but I don't mean, you know, breaking it down. But breaking apart this core a little bit. Is a Jeff McNeil traded? Is a Dom Smith traded? J.D. Davis, you know, though, is Michael Conforto just simply, you know, if he, is he made a qualifying offer, he declines it, and the Mets just go, all right, good luck. 
what are they going to do to change what this lineup looks like? Because you can't just bring back the same team. Um, it can't just all be free agents too. Like trades have to occur. Uh, we don't know who's going to become available. I mean, this you know this time last year, we didn't know for sure that Francisco Lindor was going to get traded, and then it came up, and he did, and the, and the Mets got him. So this offseason is going to be very eventful, and you're going to really test the creativity and negotiating skills of a Zach Scott or whoever is the head of baseball operations this offseason. How are they going to creatively make this Mets team a winner? Because it's got to turn around and turn around soon. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Okay, a couple of things to take away here, though, after hearing you say that. Uh, my first one is a take, and my second one will be a question. My first take is, I don't think Javi Baez is going to have this market that a lot of people are assuming he's going to have. Now, I'm not saying the Mets aren't going to pay him a lot of money to stay, because I do think he will get he would get a good deal from the Mets. But I don't think Javi Baez is going out there and getting anything close to what Lindor got. Or I just don't see him as the type of player as he turns 29 this winter that teams go, okay, I'm going to bet a seven-year contract on this kind of guy at 25 to $30 million a year. What What is your take on what his market will look like? If he has a $200 million, $150 plus million market, God bless. I mean, to me, I, I don't, I don't see that type of player there. I, like I've said last week and weeks before, like I appreciate the positives that he brings to the table, but there's no way like these really smart front offices that make millions of dollars to make decisions are like, all right, Javi Baez and his 270 on base percentage, bring it on over for 200 million. Exactly. So I, I don't, I don't take. expect, yeah, I don't expect the market to be massive, but He's going to make a lot of money. I mean, he's going to be a $20, $25 million a year player is my guess, you know, something in that range. But he's not going to be, you know, sniffing Lindor money. No. So that actually makes me more optimistic that the Mets can keep him and it not be um, a gigantic disaster or, or a liability down the road. The second part is a question for you. Do you think Castellanos opts out? Because I, I do right now. I think for him being... He'll turn 30 in the beginning of March, so he'll be 30 years old uh, next season. I don't see – I think his contract is kind of structured where he can opt out every year, but he's not making a significant amount of annual average as it stands. I think this is the play for him to get his last gigantic payday. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's – like you said, he has the options, so I don't know that it's like a lock he'll opt out. But if I had to wager a guess, I'd say he probably opts out, like you said, 30 years old, last real chance to like cash in. And now that we're going to assume, I think it's a safe assumption that the DH is coming to the National League come you know next season, his market will be 30 teams deep because now the DH is an option. And Castellanos is not the best fielder, mm. doesn't have the best arm. Like he's just, he's out there because, glove. <laughs> yeah, he's out there because he's in, in the National League and that's, he has to be. Um, an ideal world is Nick Castellanos is a DH. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to our conversation where, you know, a Dom or J.D. Davis isn't here. Well, then you go, okay, we kind of need a DH because it's pretty obvious the Mets are comfortable with Pete at first base. There's no secret about that. 
And, you know, I, McNeil could be a guy out the door as well, but McNeil's not somebody you, you consider a defensive liability. He's He could play a lot of different positions, and he's fine at them. And then you look at it, Dom has really over-exceeded expectations for his move to left field, but Dom's never going to be a gold-glove left fielder. And if Dom's bat is anything close to what it's been this year, you cannot sit there and say Dom's our DH. I think that's been the biggest one of the biggest learning points of the season right now as we go into a totally different year next year where we're assuming the DH will exist is that for the longest time with this team, it felt like, oh, great, Dom and Pete can alternate at the DH spots. I don't think that's a reality we're living in anymore, to be quite honest with you. At this point in time, I don't think you you really want to lock in the DH to any one person. I think you're gonna you want to have that versatility, like like you said. If Dom Smith's around, you want to have days where Pizza DH and Dom plays first. Have some days where Dom DHs, because I mean, Pete Alonso's not a he's not a terrible uh, defensive player, obviously. So he doesn't need to DH every day. And is Robinson Cano on this team? Like, there's so many questions oh that come God. up. Like. If he is, he's going to need some DH time. Um, a guy like Nick Castellanos, if they were to pursue him, he's going to need a bunch of DH time. So I think the DH in a in an ideal world is a rotating thing for you. That kind of you use it as a way to give players a day off, so to speak, without giving them a full day off. Um, and the time will come eventually. Obviously, you'll have someone that's older that basically can't play the field, and you'll have to have them primarily DH. But the way the Mets are structured, I think the DH could really be kind of like a rotating door for him. All right, the next question is from Patrick Chamberlain. He says, with the benefit of hindsight, should the Mets regret firing Chili Davis? I do not think so at all. And I know this is probably surfacing because Buster only recently had a tweet, and he's been on a warpath since Chili Davis got fired. Uh, he, He really, really enjoys this topic for whatever reason to the point that he had a tweet that I know Mets Twitter absolutely loved where he said when Mets uh, hitters before Chili Davis was fired batting 240 with a 324 on base percentage 3.3 runs per game they were 11 and 12 since he was fired batting 233 309 on base percentage 3.8 runs per game which is more if anybody's counting at home 50 and 50 and 50 and 51 record no wonder some players were livid about the mid, uh, midstream change. Midstream. I don't know if that was intentional. Um, anyways, so tying those numbers in, thank you for tweeting them, Buster. I, I, The Mets tried something different. They didn't agree with Chili's ways. I don't know. I don't really have any regret. I think this simply this is on the players. They're not performing up to expectations. And I don't know why the records would be in those stats because... They've been missing, you know, obviously Jacob DeGrom a lot lately. They've been missing a lot of players, a ton of players since Chili Davis was fired. So I think that's part of it, too, is all the players they have had to play, many of them not even necessarily major league caliber. Uh, They tried something different. It hasn't worked. I'm not one of these people that gets fixated on who the hitting coach is. It's not an offensive coordinator in football, right? It's not somebody out there calling plays. So I I personally think the hitting coach is always the fall guy. And I also think more often than not, the numbers changing, and in this case, they really haven't, uh, doesn't have the correlation that people really think it does. I thought it was a little rash 
to fire Chili when they did, but you know he he's had disagreements when everywhere, everywhere, and when analytical people got involved, it, it just didn't fit. So I understood it. You know, it might have been a little rash, but the reality is, like you said, the hitters ain't hitting. It doesn't matter. Um, Quattlebaum could tell him whatever the heck he wants to. They're either going to hit the fastball down the middle or they're not. And lately, they're just not hitting fastballs down the middle. 94 miles an hour, just fouling them back or swinging and missing. And there's nothing a hitting coach can do that can make that player do that. Um, with that said, I don't I don't know all of Quattlebaum's, you know, tendencies and processes and are they working with the players? You know, obviously the results are, like Buster said, similar. So he hasn't really improved things per se. But yeah, it, to me, it falls on the players and a hitting coach feels very scapegoaty. And it's just like, oh, well, Quattlebaum's not a good hitting coach. Maybe he's not. I'm not. That's not saying he is, but. If Jeff McNeil was hitting like Jeff McNeil, if Dom Smith was hitting like Dom Smith, if Michael Conforto, he's, you know, starting to turning it on. But if he hit like he has his whole career, you know, the conversation's way different. Yeah, without a doubt. It's it's so interesting to me how this comes up every year. And I think it's a good question from Pat Chamberlain because the numbers speak for themselves that things haven't gotten better significantly since Chili Davis was fired. I think it comes down to where I don't really think Chili Davis was that great. I don't necessarily think Chili Davis was the problem. He's just the fall guy, and that's life, honestly, in these situations. If your title is the guy coaching the hitters and the hitters aren't hitting, you are not going to last very long. So it's a tough business, and I feel for him, but this isn't the first time teams have moved on, and it won't be the last. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and condition apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, next one. Uh, this was 
part two of Steve Miller's question before. He had the good one about basically figuring out how many games the Mets need to win. This was part two. A little bit more on a lighter note here. He said, what's your go-to toppings for a hot dog at the game? I feel like you might have talked about this before, but I was trying to think of something not related to the season or offseason. I appreciate that, Steve. We always like when the questions are mixed up. Uh, This was a hot topic when I used to do stick to football that I didn't know would cause such a stir to the point where a hot dog company not only sent the Bleacher Report office uh, to me like 100 hot dogs and uh, many, many bottles of mustard. I only put ketchup on my hot dogs, nothing else. And I've been called like a five-year-old for this. I've been told I'm this is a ridiculous, disgusting. I didn't even know it was this big of a deal until I accidentally said it on a previous show to the point where I'm not kidding, a hot dog or maybe mustard company, that would make more sense, <laughs> handwritten letter and all, trying to convert me to yellow mustard. I think yellow mustard is gross. If people like it, then good for you. Enjoy what you enjoy. I won't hate on you for that. I don't like it. Um, so yeah, I, for me, it's just ketchup and I know that might seem insane to some, but I don't know. That's what I've gone with. I, Joe, I actually want to guess cause you're, I know you're a hot dog guy. I know you always say when you go to the game, you keep it pretty simple. You go up, maybe get a beer, but you always get a hot dog. You strike me as the, uh, the, the full house. You get the sauerkraut you put on, you definitely probably go mustard. Am I on to the right path here? Connor, I am a true red-blooded American, and what goes on a hot dog is only ketchup. Oh my god, dude, we are one in the same. Yeah, that this is. This makes all me that, so happy to hear you say that, this. That is all that's necessary on a hot dog. If you want to put mustard on too, that's fine. It's sure. kind of like I, I I think about this too. Like when I think about a burger, like what does a burger have to have? To me, a burger has to have cheese, lettuce. An onion. Anything else you want on it, feel free. Tomato, like tomato, it, it to me it kind of depends on the the place if I get tomato on it, because uh, I don't want like a crappy tomato. It's got to be good. But everyone loads up stuff. I'm I'm pretty basic uh, when it comes to food for the most part. But yeah, on a hot dog, ketchup's all you need. If you want to throw on relish or sauerkraut and mustard, you want to throw in all that stuff. You know, by all means, I, I don't judge. But Connor and I are not five-year-olds just because we like only ketchup on our hot dogs i just think we're true-blooded americans i i like the way you've uh you've angled this i actually just searched my twitter handle in the word ketchup to revisit like how hot fire of a topic this was i mean people really got up in arms over this it was I couldn't, but I, it was like a wake up call. I felt like I had been frozen in a chamber for my entire life and I didn't know nobody's ever said anything to me. I guess people don't like watch other people prepare and eat their hot dogs. So like, I obviously, you know, down the shore, I've had many days of cookouts and when I go to ball games, plenty of times I'll get a hot dog. It's pretty easy, uh, pretty easy item to get and carry around. And I just put a hot uh, ketchup on it and eat it. And no one's ever said like, wow, dude, that's it. Like, or you know, anything like that until it's a, twi- it's a Twitter. Twitter thing. Yeah, it's literally well, a Twitter is a little um, yeah. arrogant with taste of things. I, I've well, Twitter's pretty picky about just about everything. You could say I prefer to breathe oxygen and I like when the sky is blue and there will be somebody that tweets at you. You're an idiot. I actually like this. So I shouldn't be surprised at that. But I'm just I'm just really happy to hear 
uh, that you keep. You're a man of the culture as well, just like me. Yeah, we own. You only need ketchup. That's the way I look at it. Anything else is an add-on if you want to do it. Whatever floats your boat, man. It does. It doesn't bother me what you eat. And I've gone to a million Mets games, and at almost every single one, I've got a hot dog with just ketchup, and there's not ever been a soul who said something or gave me a dirty look or nothing. So. I don't know if there's just, you know, is it just the vocal minority that just like thinks ketchup on a hot dog is the devil? But yeah, no, that's that's all you need, man. You don't need anything else. Don't reinvent the wheel. All right. The next one is not a question, but it's an iTunes review. So I want to give this person a shout out. Uh, His name is Rick Way. He left us a review that says, I listen to four to six Mets podcasts and this is uh, best by far. The guys are level-headed, understand both the Mets and baseball, and Joe is a scouting wizard. I do agree with that. I remember Mets games from 1964, so That's So Mets is such a perfect title. Keep it going. Rick, thank you so much. I wanted to give you a shout-out because we really do appreciate the reviews. And sounds like you're a lifelong fan, and we'll gladly take the number one spot out of the six Mets podcast that you listen to. All right, the next one is from Johnny. This is a question. What is one out-of-the-box acquisition that each of you could envision in the offseason? I have not really thought of like the the good players that can be shouldn't be traded but could be traded because the cheap teams are not going to pay them. And when you think out-of-the-box acquisitions – that's what you have to do. So that would be my recommended starting point. And I'm buying you some time right now, Joe, to think about this. If yeah, you can't keep, tell. Keep, keep buying. Do, do, so do, do, do. <laughs> you need to think kind of the path and not on this caliber of a player, but at least on the path of what they did with Lindor. Everybody knew, and, and quite frankly, I think he was vocal about it, and a lot of leaks from the Cleveland baseball organization, which is now the Guardians or soon to be the Guardians, uh, they were making it pretty obvious that they were not going to make the numbers work with Lindor. And considering he was a year away from free agency, that's often the times you want to move the guys. If you wait to the trade deadline, it can work in your favor. I think the Cubs did a really good job this year. It felt like they got some really good pieces back for Chris Bryant, Javi Baez on a lesser extent, Anthony Rizzo. But on the flip side, and the Cubs were in a situation where they had so many of those guys, they wanted to see if they were going to compete this year, and it didn't work out that way, so they had a fire sale at the trade deadline, which I respect. I respect that full sale. So, But you also want to see the teams that think they're not going to be competitive and would rather unload the guy before the year starts than potentially get not much in return as a panic trade at the deadline. So like the Rockies, for instance, we saw that this year. Perfect example, honestly. Um, not trading Gray, not trading Story, and they think they're going to be able to offer the qualifying offer and, and get picks back and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't have those players on my radar right now. I'll tell you I this show. One. Okay, this show in November will be just about oh, yeah. all about those players on the radar. So, Joe, give us a little teaser of what the people have in store for the winner. How about Byron Buxton from the Twins? Go get, uh, you know, I mean... He- He's fantastic talent, injury prone, so you have to worry about that with the amount of injuries the Mets had. But when he's on the field, he's dynamic at the plate, on the base paths, an elite defensive center fielder that, you know, with the DH coming, you slide Brandon Nimmo over to left field and you're getting that real premium defense uh, with a guy like Buxton. And then Nimmo in left, he should be a plus defender out there and 
they maintain Conforto, let's just say hypothetically, then the defense in your outfield is very, very strong. So Byron Buxton would be one that, you know, it's not, you know, crazy out of the box, right? Like there was rumors about him potentially being moved at the deadline, but those kind of went away quick. But I think it's a little out of what we're generally talking about. You know, we talk about the Chris Bryants and and all that stuff till we're blue in the face. But Buxton would be a way of that's changing up kind of what the whole organization will look like. Uh, really change up the core, get you that center fielder that we've been, you know, pining for for years, like have defense in center field, but also bring some offensive capability along with it. I mean, he's a total stud. There's no denying that. He runs really well. Uh, he's got pop, like you said, you know, legit, legit glove in center field. He is only 27 years old right now. And, you know, that is obviously a huge positive. He won't turn 28 until this winter. I, it's just tough, Joe. He just never plays, man. He never plays. And, it, you know, it's... I mean, I'll just run through it. This year, 27 games. Last year, shortened season, he played 39 of the 60. Year before that, 87. Year before that, 28. 2017, career high, 140. The only time in his seven years in the big leagues that he's played more than 100 games. He's a stud. Maybe they figure it out and find why these injuries are happening to him. And I think on talent alone... I love the idea, but if there's any long-term financial commitment, it would scare me because I just, he just never plays. It's, it's, this is one of the hardest ones to figure out. Do you do it or not? And I know this is just a, a on the spot idea from you. I'm fascinated by Buxton and at the same time, terrified of him. And, and, and like you said, when we get into November here, we're going to have a much clearer picture as to what the trade market is. Like we had an idea that Lindor could get traded, you know, this time last year. By November, we knew for a fact he was going to get traded. So in the next couple months, this picture of what the trade market, what the free agent market is going to look like is just going to, it's going to get much more clear. And I, you know, Buxton was someone they listened on and didn't end up moving. So to me, he's someone that, probably will become available again this offseason and the Mets have to weigh the injury risk that comes along with him along with whatever they have to give up in in capital but if you want to add a guy that could be crazy impactful you know Byron Buxton is obviously one of the more talented baseball players that you know is in the game just you just don't get to see it there's no doubt about that when he plays he's the real deal and if you're looking for a fit with this team, it's perfect. The center field fit is is dynamite. I think you're absolutely on the right path, and I think that's a name we're going to hear, quite frankly, this winter um, surrounding the Mets. All right, last question for today's show from Bill Shutt. I heard the MLBPA suggested a salary minimum for the league. Do you think this would make a more competitive league, and how likely is it to be included in the new CBA? Of course, it would make it more competitive because now there's a market for all these players. You know, it's it'd be good for free agency because how many times is there a premium free agent? It's just like the Mets. Well, now the Mets, but, you know, the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, those are teams that are in and they just sit out in free agency until February and just see whoever gives the most and then go to one of those teams. If you enforce teams to spend, I know that the 
the first proposal was $100 million for the floor. Now the Tampa Bay Rays have to go sign like a $20 million a year player. Uh, the Kansas City Royals, the Pirates, those teams have to go spend money on players. So it'll increase the market for players across the board. So I think a minimum is good. Uh, will it be included in the CBA? I think it's possible, but it can't come along with a decrease of the luxury tax threshold, which was the initial proposal. Um, the MLBPA will not sign up for that. They'll they'll want the hundred million floor. Uh, I can't imagine them settling for anything short of keeping the luxury tax flat. And then obviously, you know, similar to how the NFL salary cap is, you know, the luxury tax will go up as years go on because of inflation and, and you know other things like that. But yeah, I could see it being a thing, and I think it would be fantastic for baseball. For you know, these teams are not so now all of a sudden Chris Bryant's out there and. The Pirates have a twenty million dollar payroll. They need they need to go ahead and get closer to a hundred. So maybe they tell Chris Bryant, "Hey man, how's thirty million, thirty three million dollars a year, which is more than probably he's worth?" But they have to spend it, so it'll increase you know salaries of players, which is ultimately what the MLBPA wants. But they're not going to sign off on a decrease in the luxury tax. At least, at least I'd be very shocked if they did. I think this is something that needs to happen if they want the small market teams this is just my take and maybe it's a very ignorant one and maybe it's also a a one based off scars of rooting for a willpon led team and which is still not as bad as some of these small market teams i think plenty of the owners of those teams pirates are a really good example i'm glad you brought them up use their market as a bit of a mask to not spend. And I think it's BS, honestly. I'm not saying the Pirates or the Rays or anyone like that needs to go out and have a $200 million payroll. That is not what I'm saying. But it is pathetic to not spend any money at all in a league where, yes, there's a luxury tax, but if you got the dollars, you can go nuts. You can go wild. And it's bad for the league. It's really bad for the league, honestly, quite frankly. So I did undershoot the Pirates payroll a little bit, but not crazy. Not uh, much though. They they had a forty they have a forty five million dollar payroll. That's this year. pathetic. So that's legitimate. what Trevor Bauer was paid to play this season. And that's ten million less than Francisco Lindor is getting paid to play. So like to me that's that's the problem. The problem in baseball is not the Dodgers spending two hundred and seventy million dollars. The problem is the Pirates spending forty five million dollars. Like there there needs to be a minimum. I've thought this for some time. I'm very interested to see how the negotiation goes. Uh, I think there is probably some reason for optimism that they're, they're speaking right now because um, we know that the MLB and MLBPA had major issues last year during the COVID season on the, how they were going to figure that out to the point where they weren't even communicating with each other. The fact that we're you know, uh, two months from the offseason and you know the CBA expires in December, uh, we're at the point now that they're they're speaking to me that's a reason for optimism uh the initial offer you know it basically never works right like uh they always say when you go to a car dealership or whatever never take the first offer and uh i think that's that's the case is that it was an offer that the mlbpa wasn't going to bite on but it can be you know the level set to start negotiations and maybe they go all right that $100 million is awesome, but we're not doing the 180 You know, 
I think a fair compromise would be to keep the luxury tax flat and then do the 100 uh, 100 minimum. And that way everyone has to spend cuz frankly, think about it. If they if they shrunk the luxury tax, what the hell are the Dodgers going to do? You know, that, it's you to, can't do it. You can't yeah, do that's, it. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying you need to have the Dodgers at a point where they can, you know, go crazy and go sign every star, but you can't put that team at such a competitive imbalance. The Dodgers have to start trading away some of their really, really good players because the luxury tax number would be so much lower than what they're at. The penalties would probably be unbearable. The gap between the Dodgers, number one on payroll, and number two, the Yankees is $64 million. That is more than the Marlins, Pirates, Orioles, and Cleveland's salaries. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. If this was a vi- if this was on our YouTube channel, which, you know, find the YouTube channel, subscribe to That's So Mets on YouTube because uh, we're going to be doing more so, I'd say more so in the offseason. We'll, yeah, big def- offseason content. You'll, de- you'll, you'll definitely get a couple YouTube videos by the time the season's up. You know, if the Mets go on a wonderful winning streak, we'll find that, you know, we'll hop on there and talk about it. And then obviously you'll get this podcast every week. But in the offseason, I know everyone clamored for the emergency pods. Whenever the Mets did anything, I would get tweets on tweets saying emergency pod, emergency pod. It's now going to be emergency YouTube video. So uh, subscribe there. And, you know, like I said, you're not going to see a a ton, a ton of stuff in the next month. But, you know, come October, November, December, January, February, uh, we're going to load you up with YouTube content. So 12 teams, say they put a floor at $100 million, 12 teams would have to do something to get above it in a 30-team league. That's like really remarkable. that's That's a lot, but... Just think how good that will be for the free it's agent. It's great, market. dude. It's yeah. phenomenal. Phenomenal. The MLB, the MLB PA would love that. I mean, how many times do we complain about these guys not having jobs into the spring training? Like, that's that's a problem that MLB and the MLB PA need to fix. All these guys need to be signed. You know, it doesn't have to be the NFL. It doesn't have to be the NBA where everybody signs on day one of free agency, and that's that. But you can't be... You know, having pitchers and catchers warming up, and then it's just like, well, are the Mets going to sign Trevor Bauer or no? <laughs> like, this stuff needs to get done quicker. Um, to me, the ideal way, I don't know how to, like, put this in rules, but the ideal time is, you know, things happen in November, some things, and things go crazy during the winter meetings. Like, I remember when I was younger, the winter meetings was where every awesome move happened. Like Beltron signed at the winter meetings. Like all these guys are signing at the winter meetings. Nowadays, the winter meetings might as well just be, you know, bypassed. (laughs) You know, they obviously didn't have it last year, but you'll see a couple moves here and there. And it's just like, you know, building momentum for moves that are going to happen in a month or so. The winter meetings is where the bulk of the action needs to happen. So there's no way this, this, uh, proposal goes through right that the MLB does the hundred million dollar minimum, which is good. What's bad? It's funded by a new tax on teams spending one hundred eighty million dollars or more. There's no way that can go through. No, and, and ultimately negotiations. Yeah, ultimately we're we're still in the month of August, so 
that's obviously not MLB saying, this is the only way we'll do it. That's them saying, hey, how's this sound for an idea? Because, you know, they're going back and forth. It's not getting reported on. It's all in the background or whatever. They're trying to figure out as many of the items as they can. So that way, come November, December, when they need to figure out this new CBA to stop a work stoppage, um, there's less work to do. So I think they're working on some things and I'm optimistic that they're talking. But like I said, as as offered, it ain't gonna happen, but I think they're on to something conceptually. I think so too. Get it done. I don't wanna be dealing with a lockout season, that is for sure. And you know, we look at it so much from a negative light that, hey, I don't want to lock out. How about we look at it as, hey, we want the league to improve. That's This is an opportunity to improve the league from both the team side and the player side. And uh, there's a lot of issues that need to get done. Some we will cover throughout the offseason as well. But episode 56, Joe, closing thoughts here, buddy. So we will have a number 93. I don't know if there's a 93 in Mets history. But the Mets activated Heath Hembry, and somehow a waiver. Some no, 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 no. Somehow a waiver claim in August takes pitching coach Jeremy Hefner's number. So Hembry's going to wear fifty-three, and Jeremy Hefner, out of the kindness of his heart, is now going to wear ninety-three. Wow, I can't say I expected that, but we have a ninety-three coming. So when we get to episode ninety-three, it's pitching coach Jeremy Hefner. I don't think I've seen him wear a jersey all year. He always wears that like uh pullover that, thing. Yeah, that that pullover thingy. Yeah. And it has his number on the sleeve because the Mets have that design. But yeah, he doesn't wear a jersey, so I guess screw it. Who cares? Your number No number ninety three previously in Mets history. And now we have one. And we talked about Hefner on episode fifty three. Yeah, so he's double dipping here. I yeah. have a funny feeling Hefner is listening to the That's So Mets pod, and wanted to double dip and also realized the, um, you know, kind of a hole here in the system. He found a loophole where now he not only is talked about twice, but he's talked about as the only guy on 93. I have no 93. So we have to talk about Jeremy Hefner again, who I do want to give a little shout out for. I am a uh, big fan of coach's aesthetic in terms of like don't just be the guy that you know for Rojas it's different he's got to put on the the uniform and just you know it's pretty straightforward but like football coaches right you got Belichick with the awful cut sleeve hoodie at least it's his thing every coach Gase had the horrible hat over his face god that was bad some coaches look like absolute you know what on the sidelines uh, while others like Shanahan and McVay actually have themselves put together. Hefner, I like that he's like not trying. To, I don't, I'm never a fan. And you've talked about this before. It is so weird that coaches wear full baseball uniforms. It is truly uh, one of those things that does not get discussed very often and makes no sense. And I love seeing Hefner saying, I'm not doing this. I'm a pitching coach. I'm going to dress like a pitching coach and what I, yeah. what he thinks a pitching coach should wear. Yeah, I'll always think it's the weirdest thing in the world. Why 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 do they wear that stuff? Like imagine like I mean, he might appreciate but like imagine Robert Sala in pads and a helmet on the sideline calling plays. <laughs> so like the he might like it cuz he, so he, good. He, he's a bit he's a bit crazy, but uh yeah, I I appreciate half just being like forget it. I'm wearing and he wears the pullover. He doesn't it doesn't matter what the temperature is out. 
it doesn't matter. He's he's wearing it. Uh, one day when we talk to Jeremy Hefner, that's going to be one of the questions. Be like, do you just agree with us and think it's really weird that coaches wear uniforms and that's why you're trying to hide it? Um, I bet he would or, go or off. I, I bet yeah. he would absolutely expand on it. There is a reason that he dresses like that. He probably thinks it's absurd. And maybe that's um, that's something we'll work on this offseason. I can't promise we're going to have Rojas on or anybody of that caliber, but to at least get some of the assistants on, I think it would be a lot of fun, especially after we had Tommy on, who obviously runs the scouting department. I think the Mets organization uh, will get much better at, you know, letting certain guys do media going forward because they don't, you know, the, the Wilpon era always felt like they were hiding bad things within the organization. Now it's like, no, we're out here to win. We're out here to do our jobs. And I think that would be a pretty fun interview. Yeah, and we want to highlight the positives here, I think. And he's been uh, one, man. He's been one of the big, yeah. quietly one Dude, of the biggest positives yeah. on this team. Everyone's complaining that Rojas needs to go or complaining that Quattlebaum needs to go. There ain't a soul out there that's complaining about Jeremy Hefner. So I think the Mets found a gem in him, and whoever's managing this team, uh, that guy better walk in a room, and whoever's leading baseball ops say, all right, fill out your co- fill out your coaching staff on this here piece of paper or iPad technology, and they'll go pitching coaches filled in. Oh yeah, you get Jeremy Hefter. Like that's it. You don't get a choice. Jeremy Hefter's your pitching coach. You can fill out the rest though. And speaking of that pitching, it seems like Noah Syndergaard's going to start a rehab assignment this week. So one minor victory amongst many many losses in the Mets by, world. By the way. The best use for Syndergaard, I, I want to get this in before uh, before we leave. The best use for Middleman? Syndergaard right now is uh, piggybacking is the term they use in the minor leagues. Uh, piggybacking a Cookie Carrasco or a Rich Hill, those guys that go four innings. Both. And then, yeah, they go four innings and then Noah comes in for three. And then, boom, you're into the you know eighth inning with the bullpen. That's That, to me, is the best use of Noah Syndergaard in September and you know, obviously it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to stretch, be able to, or want to stretch him out to start, you know, full-time start. And, you know, I'm excited to see, I think in shorts, in short spurts, that stuff's going to be really exciting. I could not agree with you more. And, and you saying that bringing up that he's piggyback, those two guys for some reason made me think of um, Marcus Stroman, who's the only guy it seems like we never have to worry about going three to four innings a game McGill's a guy that you know he's never pitched this many innings and he's he's overachieved in every single way same with Taiwan Walker overachieved in every single way but it just goes to show you and I wanted to sneak it in because we say it every show we either talk about Michael Conforto and the qualifying offer or a Marcus Stroman extension every single show and I will leave this show with this you cannot let Marcus Stroman walk at the end of this year he is the only reliable thing right now with this rotation and i want to see marcus stroman pitching for the mets for the next three to four years resign marcus stroman it's simple it's simple just do it just do it <laughs> that's episode 56 everyone we'll catch you next week get 30 percent shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at discounttire.com discount tire let's get you taken care of